You've probably seen these. Photos of missing children printed on milk cartons, pages of the newspaper, posted on storefronts, or even on tax forms. For the most part, I ignore them. I'm sure you're so used to them that they've become a part of the design. Sometimes you might actually read them, but you may assume the teens are runaways and the children were kidnapped by one parent following a bitter separation. Either way, you probably go on with your day and forget about them. Except one person, a man named Thomas Heimer, an inmate in Florida. Heimer gave a lot of thought to the picture of Alyssa Turney, a missing girl that he saw printed on the pages of USA Today. In 2006, Heimer reached out to a detective and said, I know that girl. I killed her. I'm going to make you famous. This is how the investigation into Alyssa Turney's disappearance was given a boost six years after she had first been reported missing. This confession turned out to be false, but it provided a major break in the case nonetheless. And if it weren't for this confession, we probably wouldn't be talking about Alyssa right now. She would simply be another teen runaway. Hi, my name is Ottavia Zappalat, and this is Missing Alyssa. A podcast documentary series about the unsolved disappearance of Alyssa Turney, a teenage girl from Phoenix, Arizona. Alyssa has been missing since 2001. Alyssa was a junior at Paradise Valley High School. The day she disappeared, May 17, 2001, was the last day of school. The last day of school marks the beginning of the summer vacation, and for most kids, it's a very exciting time. Alyssa, on the other hand, vanished into thin air, never to be seen or heard from again. I have read through hundreds of pages of documents, spoken to the people that are directly involved, and to those that are most knowledgeable in this case. In 2009, ABC's 2020 and Primetime dedicated an episode to the story. If you've watched it, know that my story starts roughly where that TV show ended. I will delve into many additional details that could not have been covered at the time, as well as some changes that have occurred in the years since. Alyssa Marie Turney was born on April 3, 1984. If she were still alive, she'd be 32 years old. When Alyssa was only nine years old, she lost her mother, Barbara, to cancer. From that point on, she was raised by her stepfather, Michael Turney. At the time of her disappearance, Alyssa was living with Michael and her younger sister, Sarah. Sarah is Michael's biological child with Alyssa's mom. By most accounts, Alyssa was a regular teenage girl. She was very sociable, 
She loved to laugh and spend time with friends. Occasionally, she broke the rules, smoked pot, or drank a few beers. She was a little boy crazy, and she didn't particularly love to study. But she was also a very responsible young woman who never missed a shift at her job at Jack in the Box. She had a steady boyfriend, John. She fought often with her sister, Sarah, and the two had a very normal sibling rivalry. This is Sarah, recalling their childhood together. Um, Alyssa and I were really close. We were the last of six kids in the house. So for the majority of my childhood, it was me, Alyssa, and my dad. She was very, very mean to me, and I was very mean to her. Um, we would fight a lot, normal pushing and shoving and hair grabbing. And, you know, she didn't want me taking her clothes and I didn't want her taking my toys. Um, it was really normal. Like I look back on it and laugh. It's nothing I look back on and I'm like, oh my gosh, she was the meanest sister. It's funny. We were really hot and cold with each other. One second we were fighting and the next she was like braiding my hair and doing my nails. Um, so it was just, it was great. I mean, it was a totally normal sister relationship. At least what I think is normal. <laughs> well, what's hard is she got to this point where she was cool, right? Like she became this teenager and I'm four years behind. So I'm like the opposite of cool. And I'm still like tattling on her and trying to blackmail her for stuff. Like I won't tell if you give me something out of your room. So I get it. Like I wasn't a cool little sister. Like I was a little brat. So <laughs> I don't blame her. Like many parents of teenage kids, Michael experienced a good amount of friction with his stepdaughter. He defined Alyssa as quite a handful, a little pistol. Michael was angered when Alyssa didn't respect his rules, and he felt that she wanted more freedom than she could reasonably ask for. He was very strict with her, but by his own account, he also seemed to believe Alyssa needed more supervision than his other kids. In his interview with ABC, he said, She was just very naive to many things. Didn't comprehend the repercussions of what she did. Michael also claims that Alyssa had some learning difficulties and needed extra help with schoolwork, too. According to her friends, Alyssa felt stifled by Michael's strict parenting and supervision. As a result, she became more rebellious and fought with Michael very often. The tighter you hold on to a child that wants to fly, the more they're going to resist. Her behavior was a thousand times better than mine when I was her age. Um, but she did very normal things, like having a boyfriend and telling my dad that she was at work when she was really with a boy. It was very innocent things. She wasn't robbing banks or doing hard drugs or anything that would like detrimentally change her life. Um, and again, she was 17. She was about to be 18 soon enough, and she felt all that freedom. And I felt the same way. You know, I remember making a statement, I am 15 years old, I am a grown woman. And it's just that mindset you have, especially when you're a teenager from West Phoenix who grew up in a tougher neighborhood with tougher friends. I, I feel like you, you think you're older. You just feel so much older. I've already been through so much. May 17th, 2001 is the last day Alyssa is ever seen again. That day marked Alyssa and Sarah's last day of school before the summer break. Since the school records are no longer available, we don't have an exact time frame. According to the timeline that has been established by investigators, however, Michael picks up Alyssa from school early that day, at around 10.30 or 11 a.m. Now, that day was supposed to be a short school day for Alyssa in the first place. But note that Michael picks her up even earlier. 
The rest of the events of that day are documented by Michael himself. He says he takes Alyssa to a restaurant where they pick up some food. They return home where they were supposed to have a discussion about Alyssa's plans for the summer. That conversation, according to Michael, erupted into an argument because of disagreements about how Alyssa would spend her time during the break. So Michael decides to leave the house and let Alyssa blow off some steam. He goes shopping for a camera lens and supposedly to run other errands, then goes to pick up his younger daughter, Sarah. Along the way, he tries calling Alyssa's cell phone to check on her, but Alyssa doesn't pick up. Meanwhile, Sarah spent her last day of seventh grade at a water park with her friends. The kids are then bused back to school, and Sarah, noticing that her father isn't there to pick her up on time, walks home with a friend. It was the last day um, of school. I was picked up between three and five, I believe. Again, it's all really fuzzy. I walked from the school to my friend's house where we smoked some cigarettes. Um, I went to my friend's because he wasn't there yet, I believe. Um, the plan was for him to pick me up. Um, but that was very normal for me just to walk to my friend's house after school and then for him to pick me up. Um, but I don't remember the exact plan. I don't remember being upset that he wasn't there or anything. Um, but I was picked up pretty promptly from my friend's house. Um, we were there for probably less than an hour until he picked me up. And he, um, I got into his truck and he said, your sister's not answering the phone. Will you try to call her on my cell phone? He handed me his cell phone. I called her a few times. She didn't answer. According to detectives, in Sarah's statement, she recalls being picked up around dusk which in Arizona in May would have been around 7 p.m. When I spoke to her more recently, though, Sarah thinks she may have been picked up by her dad earlier than that, no later than 5 p.m. But regardless of the exact time Sarah was picked up, there is a large time frame where Alyssa's whereabouts are not accounted for. Here is Sarah recalling what happened next. Um, we drove back to the house, got inside, went right to her room. Um, her backpack was dumped all over the ground, and then I had found the note in her cell phone. The note she's referring to appears to be in Alyssa's very own handwriting, and it reads, Dad and Sarah, when you dropped me off at school today, I decided that I really am going to California. Sarah, you said you didn't want me around. Look, you got it, I'm gone. That's why I saved my money. Dad, I took $300 from you. Alyssa. While Sarah, only 13 years old at the time, didn't get concerned right away, thinking her rebellious sister was probably staying with a friend somewhere, by all accounts, Michael was very distraught from the get-go. Some would say Alyssa's disappearance changed Michael forever. He seemed obsessed with finding his stepdaughter. Aside from reporting her missing with police, he printed flyers, contacted the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and even obtained phone records for that day. Again, here is Sarah's take on the situation at home after Alyssa was gone. He was very concerned, very concerned. He would take 
flyers everywhere. He had them on his dashboard. He would hand them out at the mall. He'd try to put them up on lampposts. He would have conversations with the bank teller or the grocery clerk, anybody, everybody about it. He could not stop talking about it. He also made several trips um, to California to possibly retrieve her. He was in bed a lot more. He was very um, um, immobilized, if you will. Um, like I said, he just laid in bed most of the day. He had a few TV screens that he would have going at one time. It was almost like a hospital setup. He had like one above his bed. He had one to the side. Um, so he really wasn't active at all. A lot of the times I would bring him his meal in bed, that type of thing. Um, other than that, he was gone most of the time to California. He, he spent extended periods of time in California? Um, he would spend, I want to say it was up to a week or so at a time, but he would go frequently. Specifically the first summer, um, I mean, he was barely ever home. And he told you that he was, I mean, that he was going there to look for Alyssa? Correct. And I went with him, I can't remember if it was once or twice, but I went with him at least once. Sarah's father also said he went to look for Alyssa in dangerous parts of town when he was on his own. He specifically said that he went to California to go to the barrio, in air quotes, um, which is, uh, it, his understanding is just a worse part of town. Maybe some scary neighborhoods where sex trafficking might have happened, that type of thing. Um, he didn't take me on those ones. So we just did the mall and the beach and stuff, but like I said, it was my understanding when he went by himself that he would go into the scary neighborhoods. I think he was pretty obsessed. I think I was enjoying a vacation more than anybody. Um, again, I was still under the mindset of, eh, she'll be back, we're just going to California. Um, but yeah, I mean, he was, he was obsessed, 100% depressed. According to Michael, though, seven days after Alyssa ran away, on May 24th, he receives a phone call from her. It was five in the morning, and he was asleep when the phone rang. In his interview with ABC, he remembers some details about that call. He says Alyssa was upset and seemed to be picking up the argument where they left off. The conversation was scrambled, and he claims her voice was muffled, as if she was holding the phone away from her mouth. According to him, she used cuss words and criticized him for what he had done. Before hanging up the phone, she told him to leave her alone. Police later traced that call to a payphone in Riverside, California. It was only 29 seconds long. Michael recalls he was so distraught when that happened that he didn't think to dial star 69. Instead, he jumps out of bed and into his car, thinking she might have called from nearby, and drives around to go check all nearby payphones looking for her. Meanwhile, someone calls the house, so by the time he returns home, it was too late to dial star 69. Let's fast forward six years. As I mentioned in the beginning, Thomas Heimer, a convicted killer in Florida, tells a story of how he abducted and killed Alyssa Turney. After being sentenced to life in prison in 2003, Heimer made contact with several law enforcement agencies claiming to have killed 21 women. FBI agents go interrogate Heimer, and he identifies Alyssa as one of his victims from a photo lineup they show him. The FBI then hand the information over to Phoenix PD, and in 2008, seven years after Alyssa went missing, two detectives were assigned the case, 
William Anderson, and Stuart Summershoe. Here's Detective Summershoe explaining how it happened. Uh, the confession from him was interesting in that it, it, it was detailed, but lacked any supportive evidence. Uh, Thomas Heimer is a convicted murderer in, in Florida. Um, he uh, basically uh, was convicted of a murder uh, in the early 2000s. He met a woman, they started a relationship, he went back to a hotel, checks in the hotel with his identification. Uh, they go to the room, he ends up strangling and killing her during her time there. He takes her body and puts it underneath the bed and leaves in her car. The next morning, the cleaning crew comes in, finds her body. It wasn't a very difficult investigation to track down Thomas Heimer. He confessed to the, to the crime and uh, he ended up getting convicted. Once he's in, in jail after some time, he reaches out to the investigator of that homicide and says, hey, I'm gonna make you famous. I'm a serial killer. I've killed people across the United States. And uh, he named a number of people that he had killed. One of them was a case you probably heard of, J.C. Dugard, which obviously time has shown is that he didn't kill J.C. Dugard. He also named Alyssa as one of his victims. And the story he told about Alyssa was that he um, was traveling across the United States, stopped at a, a bar in Phoenix, and uh, he found a van in a biker bar parking lot and ended up punching some guy, knocking him out, stealing the van. Inside the van, he found Alyssa. He said that she was a heroin addict, and she was strung out, and so then they started driving across the country. And even though he abducted her, they started up a, a relationship. This, according to Heimer, happened in May of 2001. The investigator's job at this point was to get to know as much as they could about this missing girl so that they could determine whether the confession was real. Thomas Heimer has some unusual sexual tastes, and he said that Alyssa shared these. So they eventually ended up in Georgia, where they, um, uh, he ends up killing her during a sexual escapade. Uh, he claims he then uh, chops up her body and then disposes of the remains at a recycling plant. But his story um, is such that there's no physical evidence whatsoever to, to corroborate this and verify this. So they quickly determined that this confession was false, mainly because Heimer's description of Alyssa's hard drug use or unusual sexual preferences were refuted by all of her friends and her boyfriend. Besides, Heimer's explanation of the way he disposed of the body so that it can't be recovered seems pretty convenient. Melissa's case received a lot of media attention, and one of the media uh, outreaches was a um, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children would have a, a regular feature in the USA Today newspaper, and he actually had clipped her, her photograph um, from that, that advertisement. And that's how he got, because it basically said she disappeared in May of 2001. Okay. So that's how he had that basic information. And we were gathering information in order to talk to him and try to corroborate or refute what he's saying. So we needed to know a lot about Alyssa, because we're going to sit across the table from him and say, hey, tell us about this girl that you killed. Tell us, make us believe that you killed her and you knew this girl. Eventually, Heimer is given a polygraph and he fails. 
Once Anderson and Summershoe confront him with the information they now have about Alyssa from her friends, he gradually takes back his confession. That's when we started interviewing uh, family, friends, co-workers, everybody that would have information about Alyssa. It was during this research, in fact, that they began to discover troubling information about Alyssa's life at home. Investigators questioned all the people that should have been questioned years before and found out some pretty intriguing information. So they decided to have a fresh look at the case. Uh, the case, as originally reported to police, was very much reported as a teenage runaway case, as a girl who willfully left her home, left a note behind, and um, you know, possibly gone to California. So that was the, the initial theory of the case, and only as other facts came in over the years that the focus changed. The story of her being a runaway just kind of fell apart. It wasn't, and the facts, the reality didn't reflect that, that story. As we began to interview more people, then we began to get some disturbing information um, that Alyssa had told her boyfriend, had told other friends, um, some of the information about uh, Michael, Michael's um, surveillance of, of Alyssa, uh, kind of um, his need for control of her, some disturbing elements of it. That, that kind of alarmed us, and then that's kind of when things kind of moved in a different direction. At that point, in 2008, investigators start to suspect Michael might have had something to do with Alyssa being gone, that he might have harmed her in some way. In an interview with ABC News, Detective Anderson says, Alyssa had told her friends very graphic things, very disturbing things. You have a potentially dangerous family secret there, and a child who's never been seen again. You put those together, you have to start looking for who would benefit from her disappearance. According to Anderson and Summershoe, that person is most likely her stepdad, Michael Turney. They are forced to start the investigation from scratch, and after so many years, a lot of the evidence that could have been collected is no longer available to them. In an effort to recover some evidence corroborating their theory, they obtain a search warrant to look inside Mike Turney's home. Mike no longer lived in the house that Alyssa disappeared from, having moved to a home across the street. On December 11, 2008, investigators executed a search warrant both in Mike's previous home where Alyssa last lived, and in the home he currently lived in. The idea was to see if they could find any evidence connecting him to the disappearance of his stepdaughter. Investigators don't find what they were looking for, but what they do find inside the home is shocking. There are 26 homemade pipe bombs, three incendiary devices, and two silencers, among many other weapons. In order to remove the explosives, they are forced to evacuate the entire neighborhood for days. An investigation is led by the FBI, the ATF, and the Phoenix PD, and Michael Turney is brought to trial. In April of 2010, Turney pleads guilty to unlawful possession of unregistered destructive devices, a felony offense.
On September 28, 2010, Judge Susan Bolton sentences him to the maximum sentence, 10 years in a federal prison. Michael was released on March 2nd this year. At present, he is living in a halfway house in Phoenix. Can a teenage girl disappear without ever being seen or heard from again? The only person that claims to have seen or heard from Alyssa after her disappearance is Mike Turney. Mm -hmm. that, that, and that can't even be corroborated. And that can't be corroborated. Uh, Alyssa was a, an average teenager. She had friends. She was very close to her friends. She had a boyfriend. You know, she, she had um, very, a, a, a huge selection of people that she interacted with on a regular basis, and that all stopped on May 17th when Mike Turney took her out of school. You know, I, I, she would have to be a sociopath, in my eyes, to just cut off ties with everybody in her life abruptly and then to somehow turn over a new leaf and, and be, you know, established with no money, no, no, no support whatsoever, just turn over a new leaf and start a new life and have no contact with anybody in her prior life. That, to me, is not believable. And, and then when you add the, the fact that there has been extensive media coverage of her disappearance. I mean, it's, it's been on TV, it's, it's in the newspapers. Even if she wanted to willingly cut off ties with her family, and, you know, let's say she wanted to get away from her stepfather because that's who she was having issues with. When she sees that he's in jail 10 years, wouldn't that be the time to reach out and finally say, hey, I'm alive and well, I'm an adult now, he can't touch me anymore. Right. Why, why hasn't that happened? The problem is, I've come to realize, and I think you will too, that every answer in this case just raises more questions. It's a very complicated story, which is probably why it hasn't been resolved yet. Take for instance that runaway letter Alyssa left behind. If this was not a voluntary disappearance, how do you interpret that? And what exactly did Alyssa's friends say to detectives to cause their perspective on the case to change so radically? Did Alyssa really speak with Michael a week after disappearing? In the coming episodes, I will take a closer look at those pieces of the puzzle, as well as many others. Coming up next on Missing Alyssa key phrase in that is mass murder. He had planned to kill a number of people. I've never seen someone who tried to control a child as much as that. It was to the point where it was alarming. It was just a very strange situation. You know that your father killed her, right? And I was like, whatever, she doesn't know what she's talking about. But that still sticks in my mind even today. But no, before his arrest, I had never thought in a million years he could have done it. I worked four years with a teen runaway program. Teenagers do not leave notes to tell you where they're going. Missing Alyssa is produced and hosted by me, Otavia Zapala. Audio editing and production help by Raz Yalov. Our original music was created by Michael Fornwalt. The artwork was done by Michelle Reyes. 
Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.